the incomparable. Number 558, March 2021. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. This is another edition of our Shakespeare Club. And for some reason, I decided we would do, because it's not a drama, it's a comedy, I thought we would alternate. We're doing a Taming of the Shrew here on Shakespeare Club. I asked everybody, because apparently I was misled and told that the movie version of this to watch was Franco Zeffirelli's 1967 adaptation. Uh, I also watched some other adaptations and, uh, <laughs> you know, I look, consulted my complete Shakespeare. And we're here to talk about this uh, this play that has stuck with us uh, for nearly 500 years. Uh, I wonder why. Uh, joining me to talk about it are the following people. David J. Lohr is here. Hello. Hello. Uh, I don't know if uh, I've mentioned this, but I have come to Wyvett Wellesley in Padua. Okay. Yeah. Good as to note. Good here. to note. Yeah. Good to note. Yeah. Moises Chuyan is also here. Hello. In contrast, I've come to podcast angrily incomparable. Shelley Brisbane also joins us. Hello. I'm upset that David stole my line. Ah. <laughs> if I be waspish, waspish, I never do that. What? If I wash-pish? be waspish, best beware my sting. <laughs> fair, fair. And Philip Michaels also joins us. Hello, Phil. Yes, I'm looking forward to the chance to uh, uh, discuss this searing tragedy where a man psychologically torments a woman into obedience. It's a comedy? What? That's the funny wacky. It's it's madcap. It's madcap. This play has been adapted many times. It's been staged many times. It's stuck with us over 450 years. And I guess, so my opening statement, if if I could give a little opening statement here. Um, just, Just to kick it off. Just to kick it off. Women, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but Wait, what seriously. What podcast did I come into now? I it's the Joe Rogan show, Shelly. <laughs> Welcome to the Joe. So, uh, so I already had some trepidation um, based on the, the play, although the play is. Okay. The impression the play I get is that there are, there, there, are, there are a lot yes. of people. There are a lot, it is of its time, I guess. It's very much of its time. Um, yes. Sure. It's, it's time very... being the 16th century. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, I was thinking how how can how will this approach the story? I know the outlines of the story. How does the play approach the story? How does Zeffirelli's film with uh, Burton and Taylor approach the story? And then how do other adaptations approach the story? And what I learned essentially is that modern adaptations of this look at the play and go. Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> not like that. Whereas oh, the Zeffirelli movie is like, yep, like that. Let's just do it like that. And so it is indeed a story of a man whose big problem is that his wife uh, has her own opinions, and he tortures it out of her. I'll say this for the Zeffirelli movie: it, it is only an adaptation in that it is the play on screen. The other adaptations are through a through a yes. lens and and with other layers to it. Mm-hmm. So and a filter, uh, yeah. I, I yeah, I think the Zeffirelli movie as an adaptation of the text does that job marvelously. I think so. The it, problem is with the text. It does miss the the framing sequence, and I've seen a lot of people rush to defend Shakespeare and say, "Oh, but the framing sequence makes it clear that this story within a story, and he is meant to be the bad guy." <laughs> There's a lot of people working really hard to absolve yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, that, here. It's a very short frame, and yeah. also, I mean, the only the only defense I really have for Zeffirelli is that the other things he directed were, you know, films of operas, and he made operas, and so it's like text is all is is the only otherwise it's hard hard to watch just on its face yeah i've been to productions 
where they don't bother with the framing device either because you know it's eh. well it, it really isn't a framing device in that it's just like they never circle back to it there's no frame right. there's just like here i started the window and then i left i got very <laughs> right. tired uh, I, before uh, before we start uh just a cya note here i, uh, I paid attention um, to the text and now i'm going to leave goodbye you guys turn the lights out on your way out literally yeah. they just have one member of the audience dress in period garb and we say he's that he's that guy now let's watch let's all watch the play together <laughs> okay, so we did watch Zeffirelli's uh, adaptation from 67. 1967, yeah. So Taylor say. and Burton. And uh, I have a few notes about Taylor and Burton. But don't forget introducing Michael York. Uh, Michael York. Introducing <laughs> Michael York. The movie was predicated on all the pop culture hysteria about Michael York. He's, <laughs> he's right. very earnest. He's an 100%. earnest fellow. Um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, I have not seen much with her in it. But I know her as a celebrity from. Yeah, we're uh, we're, we're of okay. that generation, Jason and I. White diamonds. It's Michael Jackson's buddy. Yeah, she's exactly. On screen. Who knew? She's she's beautiful and charismatic. I, I was like, oh, I see why she was a star. Um, and then uh, and Richard Burton has a uh a voice. And oh, he, has he is such very, a very sonorous. Oh, Richard Burton. Is and uh, he chews the scenery. Oh, he chews it and digests it and regurgitates it and chews it, it again. So, okay, to so, be fair, it's really delicious. Scenery. So another thing about being our age, for, for <laughs> those of us who are, Moises is younger, but the other of us are about yes, the same age. Yes, a child age, I am. Uh, which, which is, <laughs> it's good for you. It's good for you. I'm just saying, well, actually, Moises, this will work for you too. I feel like. The other problem I have with the Zeffirelli is that this period piece shot in Italy and all that, I look at it and I think of all of the kind of like parodies of this style of filmmaking. Oh, yeah. From what, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. This is basically, it looks exactly like a Monty Python movie. Mm-hmm. You really expect Eric Idle to show up at some point and go, my lord, I've got something misogynist to say. I'm not married yet. And, it, and in fact, during the wedding scene, I actually turned to my wife and said, Let it, this is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let us not do about Yeah. Yeah. And yet, and as, I, as I watched this, I was just like, I think as all the adapters have done is like, going to do a twist, going to play it, going to make a twist, going to realize, somebody's going to realize that this is, nope, it never happens, there's never a twist, it's just right down the middle, and, um, yeah. Well, there there is an oblique moment at the end. Very oblique. So, so at Very the end oblique. of the play, having been, quote-unquote, tamed, and, and Kate has the whole speech of, you know, put your hand beneath your husband's foot and, you know, uh, let it do him ease and all that stuff. Very famous speech, very problematic speech. And, uh, you know, that's that's really the speech that always gets uh, the twist, the shift. The, right. You know, hey, how, how do we how do we undercut the words? Right. Let's go, let's do the subtext. And at the very end, as, as Burton is like, oh, yes it worked i won and she kind of just vanishes into the crowd behind him and and disappears and he's like oh crap and starts trying to follow her and gets swallowed up by the people echoing the chase at the beginning of the film right chasing is the whole thing between the two of them but it's just so oblique it doesn't really land and what's what's unfortunate is that taylor is absolutely an actress enough to have done it differently if Zeffirelli had wanted it differently. Absolutely. If he had wanted her to basically put Burton in his place at the end, 
it would have been marvelous and people would have clapped and and frankly it would have been a better movie even mm. in the context of the time in which it was made yeah and this is on a run after butterfield 8 and virginia wolf where people suddenly go Oh, wow. She actually can act. Really quickly. So so Taylor and Burton get together a few years before this. It's a big celebrity controversy scandal, the whole thing. They break up a couple of marriages in order to do it. By the time they make this film, this is the fifth of the 11 movies they made together. In the 60s, that's mostly what they did was make movies together. This is the movie that comes right after Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is a great film, but really hard to watch. And it basically involves Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor yelling at each other throughout the whole movie. So I guess they were equipped (laughs) for this film. And the the trailer, by the way, if you haven't watched it, is really terrible. And basically the point of the trailer is... Yes, we did get Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor to make The Taming of the Shrew. You should watch it. Also Michael York. (laughs) And Michael York, yes. Um, Can't forget Michael York. Yeah, when Richard Burton enters in this movie, he's still drunk from the set of Who's Afraid of (laughs) Virginia Woolf. Um, the, The thing about Elizabeth Taylor in this movie is, and this could be said about various movies that she made, is that the amount of her that is allowed to get on screen is is proof of and the reason why she was and was known as Elizabeth Taylor, why she had that level of fame and that level of adulation. And, you know, granted, historically, this was around the time people were like, oh, she's not just, um, you know, former child star Elizabeth Taylor of National Velvet fame. Um, The vibe of the whole movie lending itself to all of the parodies that would come after it you 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 see where everybody just went, well, this writes itself and pulled out their sketch comedy markers um, down to Lucentio and Tranio entering. And, it you know, for, for, you know, Gen X and millennial types, they the the vibe with which they play the original text is is like uh, Bill and Ted's Padua Adventure. I, I was going to say it's, reve- yes. it's yeah, real totally. Revenge of the Nerds kind of material there, right? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's um, yeah, less rapey than uh, well, Revenge mm, of the Nerds. Not that it's part. just in person. No, oh, not that much rapey. <laughs> well, less rapey. Not that, that much rapey. More like that part. Yeah, it it has its moments. Yeah, mm. you know, it's very forsooth and be excellent to each other, my lord. Uh, mm. I, th- there are there are things that. Uh, it it is it is good to have seen the movie, but it's not ever going to be one of my favorite Shakespeare movie adaptations. Ooh, and no, no, um, no, like if 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 you're looking at adaptations of the text that are the text, even if shaved here and there, rather than adaptations of the general gist of the story that incorporate the text, like Kiss Me Kate or Ten Things I Hate About You, uh, this is basically the movie version that that works for that outside of like recorded live productions as far as i'm concerned there's a bbc production from 1980 on amazon prime if you got it Ooh. that uh has mm-hmm. uh john cleese as petruchio and and it's See, back to python we go yep. it's fun yeah. it's better it's, fun. it's yeah. a, there's a it's a little airless but it's it's better so am i the, so when in in watching this and thinking of the of the script the, the moment that and this is not me trying to like give Shakespeare more credit than he's due, but like the moment where the where the where the script seems to be the closest to really openly acknowledging how absurd their behavior is toward her is the scene where he begins to list things that are not real, like 
the sun is the moon and that man coming is a woman and all of that. And she's she's ha- happily agreeing with him. And that's that is like the moment in this where I'm like, ah, there we are. This is absurd. Everybody knows. And it's almost like I yeah. want them to be like, if could you two be on the same team and realize that for him to be seen as a man in this society, he has to be seen as having the upper hand. But the two of you together are actually a team and you know it and your your relationship is more complex than society. And, you know, the, that doesn't happen. So it, but there is that moment in that scene where I'm like, oh, see, they're teaming up. They've worked it out. That, and, and then I just don't think it, it sticks to it. I, I can't give it the credit. But that also works for a couple of reasons, because after all of the spectacle or so much of the spectacle has just happened and they've they've come away. They're, they're going back for the for the feast at that point. This is really the first time that they're alone together, that they actually take time to have a conversation. And it's kind of like after the party's over, right? The, the big party has happened. All this crazy stuff has happened. They've gotten drunk. It's the next day. The sun is out or the moon is out, depending on your point mm-hmm. of view. And they're like, okay, we, we kind of have to be people. And both of us have some a certain amount of wit about us, even though it's hard to tell with Burton up until that point. And that's the yeah I, I agree that's the point that sort of gives you hope and the point at which you're like okay this is where it's going to turn this is mm. where they're going to become a team and you're right it doesn't it doesn't pay off the commonly cited defense is for me is uh that i hear uh and have heard and have argued against many many times is is that oh well that's where this lady who's a character who thinks she's in a drama realizes she's in a comedy and she gets it right the problem is for me, that um, people say, how dare you look at this through modern eyes? And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. Those are the only eyes I brought. Um, the the gaslighting as a means to romance is something that just it, it feels unsettling. And it's where the things that diverge from the text, 10 things I hate about you, kiss me, Kate, that kind of thing, um, where they are able to elide that. Um, because at the, at the end of the day, it is still literally the exact same tactics that are used in gaslighting and to go, well, I mean, she's got to be some kind of dummy. Well, that's also in the text is that she is just such a dummy and doesn't get it. Um, and that's, that's what, uh, going back to the original text makes it one that, you know what, I've, I have seen well done productions of it. I don't need to see yet another one. It's not on the same list as Merchant of Venice. I'll say that. Um, but there, there are those fundamental problems with it that, um, people go, well, it's a, it was okay. It was a different time then. That's what people say about a lot of horrible things. Um, that, that, well, it was that time. If somebody said you have to make an adaptation, that's just the text. The first thing I would do is not cast Richard Burton in this part because he takes every opportunity to play the drunken loutish bully and he doesn't have to play it that way he could still be pretty funny you could go sort of Howard Keel and Kiss Me Kate or you could just be I mean you could actually be Peter O'Toole who's a little more charming than Burton is you could be (laughs) you could just make him He's. I mean, he comes to town to get a wealthy wife. He, he does not have good motives to begin with. And if you want us to have any sympathy for him going forward, at least you can make him sort of a charming rogue. Everybody knows what he's up to. He tells everybody. He tells Kate what he's up to. He tells the father what, he, what he's up to. Kate's still going to fight him on it. But at least if he was a little bit charming, you might be able to deal with it in the end when what happens happens. And then, again, if they had decided to divert at the end and let Elizabeth Taylor sort of have the last laugh, I think that would have been 
as good as you could get in a textual way. We're, we're, we're saying that, that Zeffirelli is, is, is faithful to the text, and that's true to a point, but also from about the, the wedding of Petruchio and, and Kate onward, I get the feeling that it, it's basically, it's very, it, it has an abbreviated feel. It has a, yes. well, we've got to cut this, that, and the other thing, and this won't work, and let's go to a montage, and let's do some hey na na right now, because... Uh, well, they cut the, all the Bianca subplot, right? I mean, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. That, that is totally gone, which actually is a kind of fun subplot. Uh, <laughs> if At least more fun than two people screaming at each other and, <laughs> and psychological abuse, but it's... I. There's so much of this movie that embodies just everything I I hate about Shakespeare adaptations because um, there's so much nonsense going on in the background and there there there's there's the 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 the, it seems like the direction everyone was given was make it body can you can you do more heaving and it's just it has the the feel of 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 someone who just says, well, this material isn't very good. I need to need to dress this up. And, you know, to a certain extent, the material isn't great, but uh, it. I I just, uh, you know, I hate, there are so many, there are 10 things I hate about this movie. Oh. <laughs> and I've just enunciated a few of them. I, I know so many uh, Shakespeareans who don't like this movie partly because of the way it's cut, partly because of the way it's camped up in the background and partly because it just belabors everything. It makes the cruelty that much harder. It's really long. It It feels long. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and even there's, there is probably about 10 to 12 minutes of nothing but Elizabeth Taylor panting because she's tired from running around. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Well, there, there are long stretches of the Shakespeare movie where no one's saying Shakespeare. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's so weird. And one of the things that drives people crazy is, is you know, why is Petruchio a drunkard? Does he realize he's not Falstaff? Does he realize he's not Peter O'Toole? What's going on? Right, it doesn't make sense. And it, it makes him bizarre. seem older, too. I mean, Burton yeah. is too old for the part, but <laughs> he does nothing in his acting to convince you that he's any younger. Yeah. Let me take a break from Shakespeare to tell you about something completely different. Our sponsor is Fortnite. From Epic Games, the new season of Fortnite is here. If you play Fortnite or know anything about it, you'll know that the storyline evolves with every season and it's better than ever. Whether you're playing Battle Royale daily or hopping in for special events in Party Royale, the island changes with every development that gets thrown at you. And now the island has grown wild and so must you. It's like the Tempest almost. But... Uh, Sorry, my mind is on Shakespeare. You battle with wildlife, craft your weapons, experience the Zero Crisis finale in-game now, and pick up the Season 6 Battle Pass to run wild across primitive landscapes with Lara Croft, Teen Titans Raven, and Agent Jones. Go to fn.gg slash season 6 to see it all. That's fn.gg slash season 6. Thank you to Fortnite for supporting The Incomparable. So, hi, welcome to The Incomparable. Don't watch the movie that we all watched. <laughs> there are plenty of others. There are many others, yes. Let's talk about them. Uh, well, so this is, this is, I think, what's most notable maybe about Taming of the Shrew is that so many different people have tried to do their take on it, which is, so there are the people who just keep trying to credit Shakespeare and like explain away the issues with this script and be like, no, 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 you don't understand. Shakespeare was very sly in his... This is what he really meant. He was really doing a (laughs) post-feminist commentary on... He was doing no such thing. Then there are the writers who were like, I gotta fix Shakespeare, this is bad. So um, (laughs) I, I didn't... 
watch Kiss Me Kate, although I thought about it, I didn't get to it, but I did watch um, 10 Things I Hate About You. Which it's late 90s misogynist instead of late 17. <laughs> it embraces what this really should be, which is a romantic comedy, right? Like just lean, yeah. just it, yeah. it's like lean into all of the tropes because the tropes are there already. Just lean into them. And that movie is, it's fine. As a as a teen comedy set in Seattle, I prefer say anything, but it's not a bad movie. It's it's fun. It's it is what it is. Um, I don't think it was that funny. It's okay. I I I don't think it was that clever, and yet it does some good things with the underlying material to try and try and find some level of redemption. But the other thing I watched, which I have not, I ha- watched mm. dozens of times in high school and have mm-hmm. not seen mm-hmm. since the eighties, is Atomic Shakespeare, the episode of Moonlighting that spends an entire episode adapting Taming of the Shrew. And I got to yeah. say, first off, it's great. It's on YouTube. I, you can't it holds fi- up real well. It really does. It you, does. It really does. You, it does. You, you, you can't find it moonlighting on, on a streaming service, as far as I can tell, but you can find it on YouTube, so you can watch it on YouTube. Um, it's it's funny. It is satirizing Shakespeare, but it's also very aware of what the plot and the structure of the of this play is. And it's really interesting to watch all of the notes, because I watched that last all of the notes in the plot where you can see uh, Reno and Osborne, the guys who wrote that episode. Ricky and Ricky Ron. Ta- Ricky, Ricky and Ron. Um, uh, think, okay, this is how we put a twist on this so that it actually is decent and works. And it's really quite remarkable to be like all of the moments that are in this play where the Moonlighting episode is like, all right. Yes, but no, <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. and then and then turns it around. It's really quite good. It's very yeah. good. By the way, Moises, you see you see what I did there earlier when I said it was a real Revenge of the Nerds energy. Uh huh. Because because it's mm-hmm. it's Curse Armstrong. Curse Armstrong. Because <laughs> yes. anyway. Booger, his own bad self, shows up in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Before before we before we leave moonlighting, um, oh, let's stay here. Let's Please. never. Let's stay <laughs> here. <laughs> We're gonna do a sing along of Good Love in a minute. Coming soon to TV. Moonlighting. There's a line in that that I have been quoting for on the three decades now. Um, you thou mistakest me for one who careth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yes. And I, I had even forgotten where that came from until I saw oh, that. Yeah. Oh, that's that's why I say that stupid thing. I don't want to leave Moonlighting either because um, I think it is a really good example. If I were to say, what would I do differently about Taming of the Shrew? I would do what Moonlighting does. Moonlighting has yes. that moment at the very end where Bruce Willis is giving his speech and he basically flips the whole premise around, which is mm-hmm. when she says, she says, it's the it's the moon or whatever, and he's like, no, that's that's of course, or no, she refuses, right? She refuses and says, no, it's the sun, you dummy, look again, and he's like, you're right, it is the sun. I am a dummy. I should listen to my wife. She knows what she's talking, yep. and and like it is the twist where Bruce Willis's Petruchio, basically Bruce Willis, David Addison, I don't know who what character it is really because no, he's Petruchio. He it. is Petruchio. Um, yeah. it says you should all treat the women better because they know what they're talking about and i'm gonna do that and like like literally it is the turn that in the zeffirelli movie you know i'm like oh they just need to they just need and they don't do it and moonlighting's like hold everything i'm gonna turn this whole thing around and uh and it's great it's and i really love it so of all the versions i've seen and you know i love cole porter i've seen 
more Kiss Me Kates than I can think of. Uh, you know, I could rattle off like five right off the top of my head and still not have all of them. And Atomic Shakespeare is maybe the best turn on Taming of the Shrew. Not every Kiss Me Kate does that twist. Some of them just go like, oh, yeah, that's the song. And now it's ending. Hey, Kiss Me Kate. And I, I, and I agree with that. I love Kiss Me Kate. And I have and I, I was prepared to mount a defense if need, if needed. Uh, but I, I love it. But I think I, I think you're right. I mean, Atomic Shakespeare it, it, and again, it goes back to the the ultimate charm of the lead. So you have a great script, you have a yes. turn at the end, but you also have people who are in and of themselves likable and who have chemistry as a couple more than as. And, and you know, Taylor and Burton at the time they were known as much for fighting in real life as 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 uh, for being apart for being partners. And so they played that up in the film, and it didn't do the film oh. any good. And you know, and, and 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 in Moonlighting, obviously they fought all the time, and it was a will. The whole show was will they or won't they for years. But you always knew that it was a will they. That was how it's going to come out because yeah. they were ultimately charming human beings that you wanted to end up together. I, I did some research because I was curious about the marketing and there was a whole run of posters where the tagline for the movie was a motion picture for every man who gave the back of his hand to his beloved dot 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 and for every woman who deserved it. Oh my God. Uh, what? Seriously. Yeah. Oh. And well, this is 1967. You just don't if understand. You, it, was, yeah, at, it, it was a different time. It was not. <laughs> it was 1969. It was a movie of its time. Oh, God. Speaking of uh, theatrical really. posters, <laughs> on, on, on Kiss Me Kate, you go to 1953's Kiss Me Kate, the first oh, yeah. musical in 3D. Um, on the poster, you you have the the image from from the movie of him spanking his ex wife. Yeah. Um. And yep. to for those who aren't familiar with Kiss Me Kate, it is a musical written with music by Cole Porter, wherein uh, this is a traveling theater company that is staging a production of Taming of the Shrew, produced, directed, and starring a giant gas bag of a man uh, playing Petruchio, who is now divorced from his leading lady. Um, and and dealing with backstage shenanigans and and some you know some uh, some show within the show stuff that is uh, you know among my favorite bits of business some incredible songs uh, so in love always true to you in my fashion um, Tom Dick or Harry um, uh, too darn hot which uh, which is cut out of uh, some uh, ad- uh, some uh, screen adaptations of it um, I hate meant like some amazing songs some wonderful songs oh, but as a great. show to Shelley's point it is something that it is real key how the guy who plays um, uh, Fred Graham, who who plays Petruchio in the show within the show, it, it really a lot of it comes down to how he plays it in a certain way, in the same mm-hmm. way that it really depends on who is playing Petruchio in a production of Taming of the Shrew. And the big thing, the big difference between Kiss Me Kate and Taming of the Shrew is that and, you know, this was drilled into my head by good teachers. You always have to have a protagonist that changes. They got they have to change from the beginning to the end. Petruchio doesn't really change. He he gets a little nice, but you know, he's just mm. like, hey, I won. Um, in Kiss Me Kate, Fred Graham does actually grow and change by the yeah. end of the play. And that alone is a big difference. Well and but and what's lovely about it though is and he is a gas back and, and, and yes. he's a ham actor. Mm-hmm. And I know enough about Howard Keel and have seen enough of his performances to know that that was entirely intentional and entirely appropriate to the role and 
it's 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 terrific because he he puts that into his Petruchio, but he's obviously that way off stage. And and as as Moises was saying, Kiss Me Kate is a framed is actually a story with a proper frame around it. It's the show yes. within a show, and because I I think you benefit from the multidimensional nature of the characters because they're both playing the characters in Taming of the Shrew and they're also the people in real life. And and the Taming of the Shrew part, while there are a lot of great songs within that part of it, it's it's I believe if you counted up the minutes, it's probably a minority of the movie. The mm-hmm. main story oh, it absolutely is, is in the frame. Both on stage and on, and on screen. And and the, the the other beautiful thing about it is that off stage, uh Fred Graham and Lily Vanessi, who is his ex wife, uh, they they get to be equals off stage where they're not equals on stage. Right. And that's another big shift. And also it has a great supporting cast, not only of the actors in the film, but just the great parts. The Bianca part, who, who also has a big off-screen part, is Ann Miller in the movie, and she's amazing. Uh, but it's 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 written to be more of a... she has That's a separate love story within the out of... Taming of the Shrew part of the film, and then there are all these, you know, the the brush up your Shakespeare guys and the the Keenan uh, Wynn, yeah, Keenan <laughs> Wynn and James Whitmore. Which I know it's 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 amazing. It's a really great movie. Well, it's, so so we've it. we've been touting the the 1953, you know, the movie that everybody knows. But I discovered that on Amazon Prime, uh, included with Prime, mm-hmm. is the 1958 Hallmark Hall of Fame production that uses the original Broadway cast. Yes, uh, and and really? in particular, I'll, here yes. here's something I will I will I say for Alfred Howard Keel. Howard Keel could have could have um, could have been bad playing the lead in in the in the movie, and and I'm glad that he does play the nuance of the change, and it isn't just um, Howard Keel, you know, saying the lines and singing like Howard Keel. Um, he's gotten a lot of praise. I'm not the biggest Howard Keel fan in the world, but after having seen Alfred Drake, who originated the part in this, who also originated Curly in Oklahoma, originated the lead in Kismet. This guy who was originating all these roles on Broadway of that era, getting to see him play it the way he plays uh, Fred Graham is is very different. Um, and yes, it, it, it is it is marvelous to watch. I urge people to, to look at it. It's in black and white uh, and you'll see stuff about how, oh, it was the first color Hallmark Hall of Fame. Well, the only the only materials that survived were black and white kinescope, but it's perfectly watchable. Um, the the thing that uh, I was reminded of that goes back um, to uh, to Shelley's point of the fact that Kiss Me Kate doesn't fix everything necessarily is only in some of the most recent revivals of the show on stage has the title and meaning and performance of one of the last numbers, I am ashamed that women are so simple, has been changed to I am ashamed that people are so simple. Um, yeah. Because if there is an underlying thing in the text of Kiss Me Kate that is still problematic as many things as it fixes, it is that song which is, which is golly, I'm a woman and ain't I such a dummy? Right. And it, it, it is, it, it's an incredibly sour note where everything else hangs together so well. And and while while Porter uses a lot of Shakespeare in the various songs, that one he he pretty much took verbatim from Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and that's part of why it's problematic. And and one of the things that's joyful about it is if you've read Taming of the Shrew or even if you've seen the Seferelli movie, the way Porter manages to weave Shakespeare's words into songs, oh, both in so both the inside done. and the outside of the frame, is just delightful. And I'll say one more thing about that. So the if you listen to the soundtrack from the 1953 film, and I really want to see the Hallmark Hall of Fame because I bet it's sim- more similar to the film than the play, a lot of lines from Porter's original score <laughs> were changed. 
Uh, there's a lot of talk about just virgins that doesn't get into the 1983 film. There are a lot of lines that are changed from Brush Up Your Shakespeare. And my guess is, like I say, Hallmark Hall of Fame must be very close. Well, it was it was done for TV. They cut all kinds of stuff for the TV thing. Too Darn Hot isn't in there at all. Oh, well, that's just criminal, but I'm not surprised. It couldn't be. I mean, Too Darn Hot, They in, in the Broadway show, that's actually in the story. And in the 1953 movie, they're they're like, "Hey, I brought I brought our Bianca over to try out this song. What do you think?" And and it's just out of totally out of context. It's totally neutered. Uh, it's just an excuse for Ann Miller to dance, which is not a bad thing. It's it's but, kind of a great number. It could be so much more, but I really love it. It's amazing yeah. on stage. The the one other thing I'll say about the 58 thing is that it's interesting that it plays very differently to like the TikTok and YouTube um, world that we live in now because some of these songs are played directly to camera in a very in a very um, uh, breaking the fourth wall completely intentionally kind of way that I wasn't expecting and I kind of really enjoyed it was it it, it, it there, there are things about it that I, I did not I, I was like oh cool I'll get to see the original Broadway cast which I should mention includes Jack Klugman as one of the gangsters um, yes. and he's fantastic. Oh, I think I knew that. Yeah, that's, it's oh, uh, it's great. it's really good. It's really really good. I, I you know put it on the on the playlist along with Moonlighting. I saw the revival in 2000 with Brian Stokes. And oh my god! Oh, the, that that was amazing. And their um their take on the they kept the I believe that women are so simple, but they literally had the actress playing uh, uh, Petruchio. I, I believe it was Marin um, Maisie. Um, t- literally turns to the audience and does a wink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I thought that was clever. The other thing that I enjoy about the 1953 version is it was actually filmed as part of the 3D craze. And yeah. if you don't oh, know that, so there are moments in that movie where you will think the director has gone insane <laughs> and it just has to quick, throw something at the camera. Throw Bob Fosse at the camera. Or like the, the sort of weird perspective shifts on the yes. one song. They throw confetti at the camera for no no reason. <laughs> and and you're all, what, what is happening? And no, it's just 3D. So One, one of my favorite things about the 1953 one is that is actually the first time you get to see Bob Fosse choreographing on film. Right. And he only, that is good. He it's only good choreographs moment. his section of From This Moment On which was not in the original show. It's from another show called Out of This World that was his follow-up to Kiss Me, Kate, and didn't do as well. And uh, it replaced the terrible Bianca song. Um, Bianca. I'm sorry, Bianca. I'd rather give up coffee than Sanka, even Sanka, Bianca, for you. Terrible song. Agree to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) But that is the first time you see Bob Fosse getting to flex his muscles on film, and it's great. It's not just him as a hired dancer. Um, as for the 2000 version, they did tape it. Uh, it's It's been on great performances. It's on DVD. I think it's on Broadway HD. Uh, but it it's not the version with Brian Stokes Mitchell and Marin Mazzi. It's uh, with Brent Barrett and Rachel York, who replaced them in the production. It's yeah. still a lot of fun. There is some issues I have with it. I don't I don't really buy the the replacing the the Texas oil man with a Pentagon general because John Guar wanted to make some kind of statement. It doesn't, it, it's very jarring 
in the middle yeah. of the show. But the rest of the show is it's a delightful production. I didn't I didn't dig Brent's um take on on uh, on Fred. Yeah. Um that much yeah. and I'm I'm incredibly je- well I'm incredibly jealous of Phil for how many reasons. I've added another one which is that he got to see <laughs> the the production with Stokes and and Marin Maisie. Um but the the cast recording of that production with with Stokes uh and 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 Maisie. Oh, um it's it's phenomenal. Any cast recording that you hear Brian Stokes Mitchell on of any musical, um, a revival of it, that is a better way to listen to that musical almost every time than the original cast <laughs> of a given show. Um, there was one other thing. Oh, yeah the 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 thing the thing I find about um, Kiss Me Kate is that uh, people might know a, a piece of one of the songs even though they have never seen a production of it or seen a movie or a recording of it anywhere. Um, it's one of those that because those Cole Porter songs are so, so well known, they might not even know anything about Taming the Troop, but they might know a little bit of one of those songs um, because they're all so good. And, and I'm also uh, team Phil on, you know, Bianca is not as bad of a song as people give it uh, credit for. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just as sappy and dopey as like everything is rosy from Bye Bye Birdie, but there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. You know, you need one of those every yeah. now and then. I suppose the, the the my favorite thing about the fifty three version and and the fifty eight version is sort of listening to see which double entendre which double entendres got through and which they cut. Yes, they're like, oh no no this this one can't go. But yeah, you can keep uh, Tom Harry or Dick. Yeah, right. a dick a dick dick. You can you can listen to the a dick a dick a dick a dick. You can listen to the forty eight Broadway cast and then you can listen to yes. This, uh, 1953 film which i did and enjoyed it thoroughly and yeah i love the alfred drake it's it's rare i'm on a podcast where i didn't cause the explicit tag so that's great (laughs) (laughs) we're talking about a guy named dick i'm just (laughs) Just stop i'm I'm repeating lyrics from a song that's all that i'm doing that's right enough of this discussion of a classic film with classic people involved (laughs) i just i need to pull us back to 10 Things I Hate About You because I watched it. <laughs> yes. No, no. Hey, Jason. Jason. Wait, was Jason, that in color? Jason, in I'm, color? Right, I'm right, th- I'm right there with you. And the reason I want to bring it, it up is- used the third is, one. First off, I, I really do believe when we think about modern uh, comedies, not just like sitcoms, but especially romantic comedies, I think they all owe- I mean, there's a whole tradition there, but there there are times where it's like very clear that so much of it is owed to Shakespeare that I think it's uh, delightful that 10 Things I Hate About You is just straight up, yep, it's our take on Taming of the Shrew structurally. But what fascinates me about it is how you can take that story and have it hit every single romantic comedy plot point. And the, the one that really... That, that I love is the whole idea is still the same that Heath Ledger is essentially being paid to take out Julia Stiles because somehow because and, and the movie is like how do, how do we explain this and the answer is their father is Larry Miller he's a crazy person like alright let's do that so that's what it is <laughs> Larry Miller is like no, you're Larry, not Larry, Larry until... Miller is a doctor obsessed with his <laughs> daughters not getting pregnant until my older daughter is dating haha she'll never date and they're like we'll pay you to date her so it's like alright um, but again it hits all those delightful notes which is uh, he has to win her over. He has to do his research to figure out uh, what she likes uh, because he wants to get paid. And then there's that his heart softens a little bit and then he's actually kind of interested in her. And so then it's like he keeps going on, but he's more interested in her now and it's a real relationship. But 
<gasps> she finds out that he's been paid to do it. Oh, it's over. And then he, he has to explain, no, no, but it, it, I, I really do have feelings for you. And it, it wasn't the money. Only at first was it, was I being paid. And then later <laughs> I was being paid, but also felt those feelings for you. It's like, oh, we all understand it now. Like, I just, I delighted in the fact that it hits all of these notes that you know were coming. Like, you know, it is the structure that you expect. It's a beautiful thing in some ways, a modern Hollywood romantic comedy. You know what the set of items is that will be passed through. And uh, and also, honestly, um, unlike the uh, Zeffirelli movie, the uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, is is much more interesting than Michael York, and uh, that subplot is actually kind of fun too. With the uh, with the popular girl who learns in classic uh, teen comedy fashion that the the popular guys suck, and that the uh, gigantic nerd uh, who is only not a bigger nerd because he's next to David Crumholtz playing the world's largest nerd of all time. Uh, is uh, actually he's pretty cool and maybe you should go out with him. So, uh, you know what? It's not a great movie, but like I delighted in lots of the details of it. I have a great deal of affection for the movie and had not watched it in a while. I watched it earlier today in prep for this and there were some problematic things yeah. that I'd forgotten about and it, it seems like uh, anything my, that my drafts says, off it's of It's from 1999. Truth, it's really, it's, you know, it's from it, another time. It's a product yeah, of its time. <laughs> it's, it's an oldie. It's a golden oldie. Back it's going to be on TCM. We had different notions yeah. of uh, love. Yes. <laughs> back, back before, yeah, back then. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the thing that I had completely forgotten about that I that I delighted in the most is right there at the beginning of the movie, and it's Allison Janney as Miss Perky, oh, Miss yeah. Perky, uh, the erotic fiction writing yeah. guidance counselor pa- who was writing about tumescent members. Beautiful power book, fifty three hundred, and I think simple text. I think she's writing in simple text. Wow! I love that. I love that. I'm focusing on her talking about engorged members, and Jason's like, "Oh, that power book. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, that's that, right. That beautiful, beautiful piece of hardware. Power PC, silk screened, right on the uh, right above the display." <laughs> What a time to be alive, Ooh, man. Just think about those bezels. Oh, man. I remember when they respected everything. I, the, the movie the movie is something that I, I mentioned earlier. It, it it added late 90s version of misogyny as opposed to you know 1600s misogyny. Um, and that isn't to say that the entire movie is problematic and, and I'm, I'm trying to uh, paint with a broad brush. But but there are you know some precise things that don't exactly hit quite well. But the, the movie is sweet and it has that Frankie Valley moment at the stadium that just, you know what? I don't care how cold and dead your heart is, Jason Snell. I hope that melted melted your heart. You mean when Heath Ledger's dancing around like he's the Joker? Um, <laughs> well, he, just it, is, he, it is. I'm like, ooh, there it is. He's going to use that move again later. Um, he's, the, these are his dance moves. They just I mean, happen to also be the dance moves of the Joker later. <laughs> the actual thing that intrigues me about 10 Things I Hate About You as well is that uh, Julia Stiles, I mean, they call her a shrew and all that, but she's just, she's just kind of... I mean, she's a basically she's a Gen Xer. She's she's basically just cynical. Like that's it. Like which is what more offensive thing for to be as a millennial is to be cynical like a Gen Xer. Don't do that. That's terrible. But like she in a lot of these like Taming of the Shrew versions, like the Moonlighting one, right? It's like oh she's throwing stuff and like Elizabeth Taylor's demolishing furniture and like it's like what is wrong with this person? And in 10 Things I Hate About You, she's just, you know, a cynical teenager who people don't like and they don't think is cool. And on one level, that's funny because the other cats are so extreme in these other adaptations. And another level, it's much more like a person. (laughs) 
right? That she's like, she doesn't get dates because she's cynical and negative and she just wants to, you know, go off to college and get out of this town. Uh, Beautiful, but it's Tacoma and they're right on the water. It's gorgeous. It's great. Uh, Just the look of this movie is amazing. All the outdoor shots are amazing. But like Kat is just, you know, she's just a person. It's totally reasonable that she wouldn't be popular and not care about it. And, And instead of her being... A kind of a monster because that's the other part of Taming of the Shrew right is is Cat the way Cat is portrayed is like you can portray her as being a crazy person as being like a monstrous person who destroys everything and hates everybody and like what is her problem and 10 things I hate about you can't do that and doesn't do that and it and I approve of that because none of the adaptations when we talk about what's wrong with Taming of the Shrew and the adaptations, we usually focus on what should happen, what should the dude do at the end, or even what should the the woman do at the end. But very, we never, ever, ever think about what might be the motivation for whatever it is that Katarina is doing at the beginning. Is it perhaps that her value in the world is based on when and whether she gets married? Yeah. Is it perhaps that she has nothing else to do in life? Is it perhaps that maybe she can't even get her father's attention any other way than acting ridiculously? And there's no adaptation of, of Taming of the Shrew, with a possible exception of Kiss Me Kate, where you have so much detail about the character outside the play, where you're actually interested in what the woman's motivation at the beginning might be and how this intruder into her life might affect that that's the big win of of that movie is is the way that it lets her be a fully formed person if i if i were to give shakespeare some notes that, i mean um that's on, what this podcast play. is all yes. about right if, if i were to call him in and say billy let, Bill, billy Bill. I, I like a lot of your work um this one needs a needs um a couple rewrites but love the framing device want to see more about christopher sly what are his his emotions his ambitions what does he get out of this thing but billy um the thing i don't care for is the, Catherine uh, really has no. She's she's a cipher. We don't know why she is the way she is. We we don't get that moment where she shares her thoughts. We just we just see her as the as the rest of the world sees her. And I think you're so close to getting it, Shakespeare. You're so close. There's a scene early on where they go the that wench is struck mad or wonderful forward. Well, what about that second part you mentioned? Talk about that. Talk about talk about why she is the way she is. Why she feels that she she should act this way. And uh, I think you'd have some interesting things in in your little play there and uh uh, come back later and we'll talk about titus andronicus because that is gross i I dare say (laughs) my lord my lord philip uh uh, would would your contention be that women are people and not property (laughs) yeah well you know i'm I'm looking at it with the wrong uh the wrong point of view i guess prithee sir philip do you not understand standeth that i am writing to earn money uh by the word (laughs) Yeah. Fast <laughs> with fleet of foot and quill. Honestly, that is the core of it is you got to wind it all the way back to the beginning was it, it's not really about Petruchio and how he's portrayed. It really is. What is the deal with cat? The fact that she is portrayed as a monster first off is yeah. a problem, but also what has driven her to this point? If we treat her as a human being, things get a lot more interesting than if we just treat her as a raving monster who must be tamed that's baked into the story. Yeah, and, and the play, the play isn't concerned with that at all. It's concerned no. with showing what her value is as property. And it, yes. it's more looking at Petruchio going, there's value in this as a business proposition, not as a partnership between human beings, because 
She is not a human being. She's a woman. She's property. And so, look, lady, if you want to be, uh, you know, a, 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 a well-fed and well-funded piece of property, uh, get on board with this scam if you get what I'm saying. I appreciate you're all agreeing with me, by the way. I, I just want to say <laughs> that as a woman, it was good to say it first. And going back to the Zeffirelli film, I mean, they literally went from Virginia Woolf right into this. And certainly the first part of the movie seems like there's still a little bit in Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I that's I, I sort of felt like that was part of the, the spectacle of the thing. And that, yes. you know, it was a, oh, yes. this is a big spectacle movie. There's a lot of money involved. They were they were it absolutely felt like they were just walked off the Virginia Woolf set and that it was entirely purposeful. It wasn't just that Burton and Taylor forgot what movie they were in. And I mean, Burton was the driving force behind making it in the first place. They wanted to do this. And and that same terrible poster, the, the top of the poster says the motion picture they were made for. Hmm. You know, the other the other bit of overhauling that, you know, Shelley mentioned earlier, the uh, the Bianca character, uh, Lois Lane in Kiss Me Kate um, and the Bianca <laughs> that we get in 10 Things I Hate About You. You know, Bianca in the original show, I mean, she's just an empty headed little ditz that doesn't get anything. And her her sister gets the con and figures out that, you know, she should show obedience. And and that's why she and her husband are going to do better than Bianca and her husband, Lucentio. Um, I love yeah. the way that they that they handle Bianca in 10 Things I Hate About You, where she's into the wrong guy for the wrong reasons. Um, and and her journey is realizing that you know what maybe agency is not such a bad thing and maybe my sister is on to something um i Uh I like that it's it's not playing her as dumb it's more society drove you to think this way and think that this was what was important um like that there, there there there's so many beautiful things about what they do in 10 things i hate about you um that are definitely more advanced than the, the 1949 version of, well, why don't we just make her somebody who is into free love a couple decades early? Um, let's, yeah, let's, well, let's, but, that, that makes her a modern woman. But but the interesting thing in Kiss Me Kate is that you get to to play with all of these tropes and all of these roles. The, the Lois Lane who's playing Bianca, Bianca's kind of a sweet airhead, and Lois Lane is a shrewd man killer. And Lily Vanessi has a history with Fred. She's not a monster. She and she clearly still loves him. Well, and beyond, and uh, Lois Lane is her romantic rival, or perceived so. Right. She's jealous of her. And in the right. in the play part of Kiss Me, Kate, David, help me if I'm remembering this wrong, but I think there's a little bit of an indication that Bianca and Kate are friends. There's there's a yes. there's a scene with, yeah. which I actually think would be a cool dynamic. I mean if if you if if uh the whole idea is Kate has to get married first, I, I love the idea that Bianca comes to her and goes, Look, sis, I really need <laughs> you to do this for me. And Kate was like, No, I'm not but they're friends. I think it would be so great if they had a couple of scenes together. And it's kind of a sense that, you know, hey, I'm not gonna get married because I'm protecting you from these idiots. Right. Right. You know, that's part of the whole point of the of I hate men. Here's why. Mm-hmm. Here's why you shouldn't get married. Right. Just, and even just... even Tom, Dick and Harry, where you have these guys who are are tropes themselves. Interchangeable. They're sort of, yeah, they're interchangeable and they have different qualities. One of them is rich. One of them is a blue blood and one of them is just very earnest. But none of them are the one. So here's my last uh, kind of overall question for all of you, which is 
we've spent a lot of time talking about all the ways that we look at the original text and we look at a faithful, more or less, adaptation, and we say, mm, I don't know, Shakespeare. Again, we have, we have some notes, Shakespeare. Why do we keep as a you know as a society why do we keep taking a run at this thing why do we keep trying to uh adapt it and fix it what is the as opposed to it just sort of fading away is it because it's so close that it's malleable and like you could take it over the goal line yourself and and fix it in a way that uh, poor old shakespeare couldn't or or what i fix shakespeare i'm better than shakespeare what writer doesn't want to say that right <laughs> I mean, I, I would take a swing quoting you, Jason, earlier, where it's there are so many elements that we see drawn from this play into what we see as kind of the template storytelling elements of romantic comedies that have echoed in the hundreds of years since that it feels so familiar because it is one of those oral tradition starting points that we're, we are used to the subgenre of the woman was a bet the whole time and having to overcome that conflict uh, once that is discovered sort of thing among many other things that you look at 10 things I hate about you. And it's kind of like, well, these are all the ingredients we put in the pot when we make this kind of stew. And that is what people are used to. And we're going to make adjustments and changes and, and things here and there. Um, it, you know, it is, it is one of the iterative templates of a kind of story that has been popular and has just kept getting tweaked over the decades and centuries. And again, most of Shakespeare is not original to Shakespeare, yep. right? He's picking stuff out of Plautus. He's picking stuff out of Italian plays. Well, this is this is Commedia dell'arte, right? I mean, this is an early Shakespeare. Yeah. And and so these are, are archetypal uh, roles, tropes, and characters. They just have Shakespeare's words on them in this one. But, you know, they're in Fado. They're in P.G. Wodehouse. They're in... Any kind of farce, right? It's all mistaken identity. It's all battle of the sexes. It's all a shrewish woman, innocent man. I think that's why it's so easily ported to a teen romantic comedy, right? Like yeah, it's got absolutely. all the pieces there. And and as Shakespeare, I think there is a desire to make Shakespeare an accessible thing. That's why we all had to see the Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet in high school. At least right. I did. Literally yep. the next and, movie Zeffirelli yep. made after right. this is the exactly. one that everybody saw in, in school. Right. And and, <laughs> and so I think that the, the desire to make Shakespeare accessible, first of all, because the plot is easy to understand and explain. It's a comedy. It, it's got literal slapstick going on. It's not about royal people. It's so it's just it's got to be catnip to filmmakers who understand all the tropes that Moises and David were talking about and who also would love the idea of having a Shakespeare play on their resume as a movie. And maybe they do something like 10 Things you ha I Hate About You, or maybe they find some other way to to modern it up. Or maybe if you're Zeffirelli and you have a lot of money, you just put a lot of people in a square in Italy and have a funeral carnival well, thing. And and part of the reason the play endures and the script endures is uh, yeah, it's not great, but it has great lines in it. It has some great back and forth. Sure. Uh if if I be waspish, best be where my sting, where would where would thy sting be? In my tongue, in my tail. Oh, my tongue in your tail. I mean it's right. just lewd and wonderful. <laughs> Which again, Porter does such a great job of porting into Kiss Me yeah. Kate. If, if so, if only to listen to the soundtrack for that reason. If if you've read Taming of the Shoe or even watched this movie, you'll dig the soundtrack because of the way he weaves that stuff in. So and well. and you know they call you Bonnie Kate and 
the pretty Kate you, the cursed you, Kate, Kate the, the cursed. cursed and the prettiest Kate in Christendom yeah. and you know it's just there are so many delightful lines to quote and and back and forth it's 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 catnip to perform the back and forth between the two of them in certain scenes you're watching that the the courtship scene uh uh b- between the courtship as it were between Taylor and Burton and you're thinking uh <laughs> the courtship oh, hunt it, it's so close it's so close to being all right. I know. And, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, if they just changed this here and did that tone here, and I, I think that's that's what what keeps it back. It is that it is the it is that you, the stone you are trying to reach to to gain all the stones and snap your finger and erase the terrible uh, the terrible parts of this play. I don't get the reference. No, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> the the chase is kind of too much, and the physicality of it is too much, and it makes the violence of it much more oppressive where you know there are productions of this where it's all all wit and back and forth in a single room and that's much more you you actually kind of like those people you don't like these two and that's why the amped up comedy versions the moonlighting yes the 10 things i hate about you work better right because it's like look let's let's lower the stakes let's lower the temperature a little bit let's embrace the fact that this is kind of wacky and do that and that it, it it works a lot better with with the temperature lowered a little bit the stakes lowered and 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 the comedy played up which the zeffirelli version i don't know i i i feel like maybe because we're visitors from 50 plus years in the future that the zeffirelli version really is trading on burton and taylor in a way that just oh, doesn't read is. for people again a product of its time it doesn't read for people in the 21st century where i'm like what are they doing right but i think it 100 percent does i don't even think it's typical of another movie that would have been made at that time sure there were sex comedies that traded in misogyny and the like but this is over the top it is 100 percent about burton and taylor that's all it exists for and if you know if you want some entertainment you can uh watch all the way from cleopatra all the way through the it's amazing they made 11 films together in like 12 years and this is like right in the middle and and they weren't just making movies because they wanted to hang out together these were profitable movies this movie made a bunch of money it was a big hit yeah yeah. And as many as many problems as I have with the original uh, material itself, and that you know, ten things I hate about you in 1999 was a revelation in terms of how many things it overhauled and fixed, and it took the core elements of it and just made it work. Down to having loads of teachers that are cursing and like talking around kids in the way that <laughs> teachers never talk, and just loads of stuff that, that that was fun and different and and that sort of thing. Um, you know, is the same reason that I can uh, I can watch you know clips of Meryl Streep and Raul Julia playing Kate and Petruchio in Central Park. I would love to see the full recording of that production. Oh God! Even yes. though I have those issues with the core, um, with the core product. I mean, is the reason that I I'd forgotten uh, about the the John Cleese version that I saw. I don't know when. At some point, um, and uh, you know, th- even though I've got those issues with the core text, um, it's it's something that because um, because it, it really is that artifact of its time. Um, you know, I can I can watch excerpts of it. I can I can go. Oh, it would be great to see this person and that person play it. But I'm I'm pretty much at the point where, like, you know, outside of I'd like to watch the whole thing uh, straight through with Raul Julia and, and Meryl Streep. I've seen a bunch of incredible actors play these parts, and that's that's all well and good. I'm really so much more interested in what is the next version past Ten Things I Hate About You that that pushes things forward 
and, you know, uh, papers over some of the things that 10 Things I Hate About You did were tropes then and fine for 1999, but um, really weren't necessarily, quote unquote, fine. But 11 they were accepted things. accepted as, you 11, can do this. 11 yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. No, let's, 11 let's find things. that 11th thing. Yeah. The, the version I wish I had gotten to see was uh, also in Central Park. And if anyone at the public theater is listening, please, I would love to see this. Uh, they cast Morgan Freeman and Tracy Ullman in in it and transposed it into an Annie Get Your Gun fantasy version of the Old West. So she's a sharpshooter and super talented and he's a lasso trick roper. And uh, it the, the clips I've seen from that look like it was kind of delightful because it was it was playful. A lot of things, like the Zeffirelli one does not get the playfulness. I also think if you're going to do, I would assume, uh, theater in Central Park, you have to do that because for a live audience of that size, and that's frankly not even always paying attention, you need need something that pops and you need fun and you need energy. I mean, one of the best moments of theater I ever had was sitting in Central Park for Patrick Stewart's Tempest, where he, he points... For the final speech, he points to the sound booth and cuts the mic, and it's just him talking. And it was riveting. All the sound of New York City just faded away. It was it was just gone. And that, that moment didn't work when they transferred it to an actual Broadway theater. I, I was going to make the joke, is that on YouTube? Meaning that would be ridiculous because you could never translate something like that to digital. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I dare, I dare say Lord Philip has indeed singed my bum. I, I feel quite... Uh, quite reprimanded. Yeah, take some of that, Shakespeare. Well, Shakespeare Club, we did it. Whatever it was oh, that God. we did, we yeah. did it. We don't, <laughs> yeah. we don't have to come back to this one again. We'll pick something different next time. <laughs> yeah, like if, if we pick one that has a Zeffirelli adaptation, let's also watch another adaptation in addition to the Zeffirelli. <laughs> I Romeo hope and that there's always a, a 90s or 2000s teen romantic comedy version of whatever it is we watch. How about that? There There yeah. is a, a teen musical romantic comedy version of Titus that's great. Mm. It was Julie Taymor who did The Lion King and... Oh, wait. yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like to thank my panelists for being here on this episode of The Incomparable that is also Shakespeare Club. David J. Lore, thank you. Uh, I heard you say Gadzooks, completely mad you are. Uh, Moises Chuyan, thank you. I heard you say good gad, but what a cad you are. Did you mind that I uh, fret and fuss, that I fume like Vesuvius? Shelley Brisbane, thank you. Thanks. I'm not going to quote any lines. Good. It's fine. I'm not a show Neither off. am I. Bella <laughs> Michaels, exuent. Goodbye. Chased by bear. Asses are made for sitting, and so am I. And uh, <laughs> thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We'll see you next time. Oh, my 20,000 crowns! No! <laughs> <laughs>